Welcome to the JLA Cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ, and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. And PJ, I know we've just been talking about this off air, but for for the uh, benefit of the listeners, if there was ever a time in my life when I, could, I would prefer to have a starfish clamped over my face, <laughs> uh, this would be that time, PJ, because uh, uh, nature is, is ravaging my face and body at the moment. My hay fever is out of control. So if I sound particularly husky or, or, or kind of bunged up, or if at any point during the episode you hear a sound like a, an elephant going into labour... Um, I apologise. Uh, please file a complaint with Gaia. I don't know. I'm suffering, PJ. What if What if you were unfortunate enough to get the starfish clamped to your face that also had hay fever? What, you mean the one nerd starfish? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Among the billions which are secreted. Yeah. P- now, PJ, you must be uh, the happiest boy... Uh, on Earth at the moment, because it see, and you know what weird, what a weird coincidence. It seems Scaro is going to be the word on everyone's lips pretty soon. So, yeah, we've uh, we've had another trailer for James Gunn's The Suicide Squad, not to be confused with the terrible Suicide Squad from a couple of years ago, because God, that was one of the worst films I've ever seen. But this one does look like a lot of fun, and yeah, they do seem to have. Starro rampaging through some city or other uh, in that movie. What they don't seem to have is starfishes clamped to people's faces. Yet. Yet, that we've seen. So I I, mean, I'm not quite sure which take on Starro this is going to be. It might be that this is just more like the original Starro where they do just fight a big starfish. I, I would put money on the table right now that there will be starfish clamped to people's faces. Because that is so iconic that if you're going to adapt Starro to the screen, you have to, basically. It feels like something very much in James Gunn's wheelhouse as well. Like It, it would be a surprise to me if he didn't latch onto that concept in the way Starfish latch onto people's faces. And also, there's a brief shot in the trailer where an orifice opens on the side of the giant starfish and what look like thousands upon thousands of tiny starfish spew out of it yeah yeah so I am 
I'm thinking they've got they've got to, right? Yeah, it's. I mean, if they don't, then I'm going to write a strongly worded tweet to to Miska DC uh, <laughs> <laughs> to to Dick Charters, the head of comics. <laughs> <laughs> and then he can just refer my tweet onto the movie division, and then I will get to write and direct the next Starro film. Now, That's how this works. It's weird, isn't it? Because, you know, I think it's fair to say that, like, modern takes on the Justice League, be it, you know, uh, on the screen or uh, New 52. Uh, I don't think it's too much of a leap to say they owe a lot to Morrison's run on JLA because just like I think Morrison uh, and Porter and all collaborators did incredible work in Rock of Ages Mm. in making Darkseid like a really kind of like credible threat again. I mean, like, what have we been talking about in recent like episodes? We talked about how uh, the crime syndicate is coming back and I, I wager the only reason people care about the crime syndicate is because of Earth 2. And now we're getting Starro on the big screen. And, you know, it's basically this version of Starro. Like, it's, it's, it all comes back to this, surely. Yeah, I think it's, from what I gather, it looks like they've coloured it more in keeping with the original uh, Starro. It's not just a solid green, but... Other than that, the concept does seem to... Because, obviously, the original version of Starro, they call it a starfish, but it is shaped a bit differently, has much longer limbs. Also iconic. Yeah. Also iconic, but as you say, very different. Yeah. Yeah. So they seem to have gone with those colours, but with the shape of this, the Morrison Porter Starro. I love Starro in all his forms, its forms, and that's fine by me. And yeah, I'm just really curious as to where they go. But I think you're right. I do feel like Morrison's run on JLA really did heavily influence how the Justice League was looked at going forwards for all mediums. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because Morrison kind of re-cemented the idea of like the Magnificent Seven, mm. if not created the idea of the Magnificent Seven. Because I'm just trying to get it into context, because kind of prior to... The Morrison run, but JLA had gone through a lot of weirder iterations, like which were perhaps not as iconic as as this version. I'm not saying they were bad. I just mean that, like, you know, Justice League in the '90s was floundering. Yeah, uh, you had Justice League International in the '80s, and then even if you go right back to the beginning, a modern reader might go. Why aren't Superman and Batman on the team? Like, who the hell is Black Canary? People know who Black Canary is, but you know what I mean. It's like that lineup hasn't been quite as solid as it became post ninety seven. Yeah, I'd agree. I think obviously the when it originally came out pre crisis, it was still the seven. But Superman and Batman were absent from a lot of issues. They had them on the team, so they could say they were on the team and draw in readers that way. But at the same time, they didn't want to focus on them. So most missions, they were like, call Superman and Batman. And Superman and Batman went, oh, I'm busy. <laughs> were they like contractually obliged to have that scene in yeah. every in every issue? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, it's weird. And again... You know, the thing that's blown my mind repeatedly as we've been doing this show is like 
how we're only a decade or so post Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah. So, like, this is the first post-crisis iteration of Scaro. Am I right? Uh, no. Um, there was one fairly soon after Crisis that I haven't read the issue for, but it's it's that's where the I think that's the first time that you had the mini versions on faces. I think we looked at the cover yes. a while back for that when we were looking at Secret Files and Origins 1. That, I believe, is post-crisis by a year or two. I want to say that was 87 or 88, that issue of Justice League. Um, but I haven't read it, so I don't actually know the ins and outs of the story. And I should have read it before we did this. I, I know, it's, research. Fu- it's funny, isn't it? Because I guess people come to us expecting you know, a font of knowledge. Like, we're, we are, you know, by default, the experts. <laughs> but um, I'm also here to learn as well. And now, you're something of a Starro connoisseur. I guess, has Starro ever been uh, intelligent? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I I can't remember specifically the League, how they communicated with it, but there's, there's definitely intelligence there. And like the modern iteration of the League in the comics, or certainly a year or two ago, when they had um, Jaro, uh, one of the small staros on the team as Batman's sidekick, um, who dressed in a tiny Robin outfit, and it was kind of adorable and fun. But he communicated with them telepathically and would be able to speak to Batman. So there, I think there are... It's, it feels like every Starro story is a different take on Starro, even within the same continuities. Um, so this Starro is very different to the Starro that came about just after Crisis. Um, I think they refer to it in this issue as well actually that event but again is is quite different to then the starro that appears in jla avengers which is also this continuity i mean it'd be nice to think that because i like the idea that i mean by which i mean this starro at least the larger entity it is intelligent but it's like uh an alien intelligence it's it's yes. kind of lovecraftian oh, yeah. um but i was just wondering like in back in the 40s or whatever Pardon me, sorry. <clears throat> if back in the forties or wherever, uh, did was Starro ever cackling or going like, "Aha, leaguers, I've I've got you in my master plan," or it was never I having can't... a dialogue, was it? I've got that first issue that he appeared, the first Justice League issue that he appeared in. Um, I can't, I think that was in the Brave and the Bold, um, and I can't remember. I haven't read it for so long. I can't believe I didn't do my research this week. I should have reread Starro's <laughs> first appearance. I should have read that late 80s Justice League issue. <laughs> I yeah. just didn't bother. I can't believe that you, PJ, didn't put in the extra legwork so that I could benefit from it. It's normally what I do. but <laughs> I know. Have you thought about how selfish that makes you sound? <laughs> it's been a busy week. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, well, I guess we should. This is an excellent segue. Um but we should talk about a guy who always does his research. Yeah. And that's super listener, Chris Murphy. Hi, Chris. Thanks for writing in again. Who, once again, has just pulled an absolute gem out of the annals of um, Justice League history. Um, so the, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, having recently spoken about uh, Mark Wade and Arnie Jorgensen's um, Adam Strange, Justice League kind of crossover, co-adventure, whatever... Um, now, obviously, there was a hell of a lot of a mention of uh, Tacron Galtos. Doesn't ring a bell. 
<laughs> That's my trigger phrase, oddly enough. I'm off to destroy <laughs> capitalism now. Um, which was uh, a prison planet associated with the uh, New God mythology, mm. I believe. Yeah. I, certainly from our perspective, we, we, can, we know that because there are a ton of parademons there. Anyway, uh, Chris, Chris writes, uh, Well, Wade and Morrison are pals bound, as one would imagine, by their shared love of the deep cuts of DC continuity. And I do love that kind of, that friendship. But one can only hope it's as true as the anecdotes you hear. Because we do like <laughs> the idea of Wade and Morrison going on adventures, like solving crimes together. Or just um, sitting down and reading, you know, like comics no one's ever heard of that DC published in the <laughs> 1940s and 50s. Yeah, which like DC won't even acknowledge exists. You know, maybe they have the only the only kind of... Um, like John Byrne's copy. Genesis. <laughs> like John, what are you talking about, PJ? That was a myth. You're the only person who read it. Um, but once again, Chris, uh, you know, just nothing but aces goes, uh, the prison planet of Takaron Galtos had its first appearance in Adventure Comics 359... From August 1967. Wow. Jeez Louise. 359. That's if Scott did like the dawn of time or something. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, Chris is basically theorising that if Wade didn't know it from that particular issue, he probably would have known it from its many, many appearances in the Legion of Superheroes throughout the years, of which Wade is apparently a huge fan. See, I, I haven't read much Legion of Superheroes myself. It's just not a book that's ever just it's just not hit my radar really, you know? I've 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 never had an urge to read a lot of it and not because I dislike the characters or anything when I, they do show up. I, I do enjoy their appearances and I've read many guest guest appearances by them, but yeah, I've just never really done that deep dive into the Legion before that I feel like maybe I should. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Like it's always, I guess it's because there's only so many hours in the day. Mm. You know, it always struck me as kind of like X-Men in space, but also yeah. the future. Like, yeah. um, I can imagine, and, and you know, I can imagine if, if it's the series you, you really, if you're really into it, I imagine it's definitely rewarding in terms of, like, lore and interpersonal drama. Like, I, I always got the impression there's just a lot of it. Like, it's yes. just, yeah, if you want it, it's there, and you will be rewarded with... A lot of content. <laughs> Maybe what if, we should do that podcast. John and PJ read all of Legion of Superheroes for the first time. <laughs> what? That's like, yeah, and then like in, in our episode three hundred and fifty nine, we can finally move on to other projects. <laughs> yeah, uh, I should say, Chris, thank you so much for writing in. It, it really means a lot, and you are educating us constantly. Yeah. I don't know how he does it. It's kind of insane. Gives gives me regular new things to go and, and read, which I always appreciate. And on the story of, uh, on the subject rather of of Wade and Morrison, kind of crime fighting duos, uh, my favourite anecdote of the two of them is the event that inspired All Star Superman. I don't know this one. Well, apparently they they were both at some convention in america probably san diego let's be honest mm -hmm. and they'd gone for a walk around lunchtime i think just the <laughs> two of them and they were just strolling and chatting and morrison talks about this in their and they've talked about it many times but it's also mentioned in their autobiography um super gogs and i think wade has also confirmed that this happened 
that they just went walking and like outside the convention center and they saw a guy uh, dressed as Superman because hey it's a, it's a comic convention San Diego Comic Con yeah San Diego I've been Comic-Con. there you get a lot of every character <laughs> <laughs> people apparently like dressing up as characters who knew uh, and apparently this dude was just like sitting on a bollard and was kind of just looking super chill just hanging out as Superman <laughs> and and Morrison's telling of it because Morrison is uh, a wondrously insane chaos magician is that this guy wasn't just dressed as Superman. For a moment, he was Superman. Like, <laughs> he just so perfectly embodied everything that Morrison thought Superman should be. Because he was just so chill. He just had a quiet confidence. He was just kind of relaxing. And they went over and talked to him, apparently for a good while. And he would answer questions in character as Superman. Oh, wow. And- and Morrison just like asked him questions about his life and was like, uh, and what it was like, you know, knowing Lois and everything like that. And he just answered like super chill. And apparently that that just sparked the seed of the Superman who became the lead character of All Star Superman, like this incredibly quietly confident, strong, kind kind of guy. Mm. And uh, apparently this is the cover. To uh, I don't know it may be an issue one of of All Star Superman in its issue form, but it's definitely the cover of a first collected trade, which is Superman kind of sitting on a cloud. I think that was like, issue one, yeah. Yeah, kind of just looking over his shoulder. Yeah, apparently yeah. that's a direct homage to Morrison's first view of this guy dressed as Superman just chilling on a bollard. Oh wow! Oh, wow. and to confirm this, and to, well, I can't, I can't, I cannot. You know, it doesn't capture the metaphysical ramifications of this moment, but there is a photo which I've seen of that guy later coming by where Morrison and Wade were sitting at the show, and there's a photo of like all of them. So it so does exist; it is out there. That was going to be my next question: Did this guy know who he was talking to? That he was talking to Grant Morrison <laughs> and Mark Wade? So. <laughs> he was probably like he probably thought he was talking to Lex Luthor, to be honest, because that would have been pre. Before the internet really took off and everyone was on there, so you you know at that point I would imagine if we went you went to the big cons, you didn't really know what the creators looked like unless they'd been profiled in Wizard magazine or something, and you were religiously reading that, I guess. So it would have been much easier for them to turn up and this guy just think, hey, I'm talking to two people as Superman. Because All Star Superman came out or it began publication in 2004. Oh, that's later than I thought. Actually, fair enough. No, but I'm. But it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because what we've got. Um, hang on, I'll get my spreadsheet out. We've got this run. We've got JLA, which ran from '97 to 2000. Hmm. Morrison. Kind of the next big project is New X Men, which I think yeah. started in 2000 or 2001. Yeah. And and then. And then bridging the gap, the next big project is probably All Scar Superman. There may have been something else in between. I'm not sure. Um, so yeah, that meeting was probably, given Morrison's kind of rise to stardom, probably somewhere between JLA. So probably we're talking like sometime between 2000 and 2002, maybe. So probably during his new X Men run, then. Probably, yeah. I mean, yeah. that kind of makes sense. I can imagine that being a time where Morrison would. And Wade would probably both be doing San Diego appearances. 
Yeah, because that would have been about around the same time Wade was... I want to say that would be around the time he was on Fantastic Four with Mike Waringo. Oh, yeah. Which was a pretty big run for Marvel. In fact, if, if probably the last time the Fantastic Four was a must-read book, I would say, mm. maybe. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because that would have been post-Claremont um, and Salvador La Roca? Yes. Yeah, they were mm. the Heroes Return uh, team for Fantastic Four. I, I mean, that was... I, I very much enjoyed that run uh, I, when it was collected in the UK collector's edition form. Um, I have a few issues of some of Claremont's later writing, but I de- that was definitely like... I Because I, I enjoyed the Fantastic Four in that weird cartoon from the 90s. Yes. And, which, I don't know, maybe wasn't like a work of art, but I enjoyed the Hero's Return Fantastic Four. That was like... I, 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 I I read that quite religiously. Yeah, there was some definitely some good stuff in there. I, I really liked their the idea that they just had to live in this warehouse on a pier for a while because <laughs> they came back and the Thunderbolts had taken over Four Freedoms Plaza. I really liked that idea. Um, that's the same era where their crossover with Superman happens that Dan Jurgens did because that's where they are based oh, really? when Superman travels over to the Marvel Universe. So. Interesting. And, and who's the villain uh, in that scenario? Uh, Cyborg and Galactus. Oh, okay. Well, I think Marvel's representing a bit, a bit better. <laughs> it's a pretty good book, actually. Um, I do enjoy that as well. As far as the '90s crossovers between DC and Marvel goes, I think that's one of the stronger ones. I always feel incredibly sorry for because, again, you know, you obviously we love Superman. Here we are doing a uh, a JLA podcast, but obviously got a lot of affinity for Marvel as well. And I've always felt sorry when a Marvel character has to crossover with Superman. Because, like, do they inevitably fight? Does that is there a misunderstanding? They do fight. It's not through a misunderstanding, though. Jurgens is cannier than that. Okay, that's good. That's good. I just, you know, poor Ben Grimm. He's just going to be breaking his fists on Superman's chest, surely. <laughs> I I actually can't remember. I think he might get a good hit in at one point. Um, because you know Ben Grimm is is pretty strong. It's all good. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the one that really I always remember for that one is when beginning of DC versus Marvel, when Juggernaut appears in Metropolis, and Superman just swats him aside. <laughs> the um, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I think um, I think I read something interesting a while ago uh, that Kurt Busiek, I think it was Kurt Busiek, said where he'd written a story where. Uh, featuring Thor where uh, villains or thugs or whatever were opening fire on him. They were just shooting at him with like semi-automatic weaponry. Hmm. And Thor took cover rather than, I don't know, just let the bullets bounce off his chest or whatever. Hmm. And apparently this annoyed people because they were saying, well, he should be like Superman, like bullets should be bouncing off his chest or whatever. And... I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer here. It just kind of sparked a conversation about strength levels and whatnot. And I think Busick's point, which I thought was quite savvy, was simply that, well, look, like he can still be a hero and he can still be strong without wanting to get shot. Like it's just different ways of approaching, I don't know, vulnerability, invulnerability. Well, I've always looked at it that 
Superman's invulnerability is a separate power to his strength. The invulnerability doesn't make him strong. He just has those two different powers. Thor has super strength, but he doesn't have invulnerability. I, I imagine his skin is tougher than a normal human's. Mm. Uh, he can take more punishment, but that doesn't mean that certain weapons aren't going to do some damage. And so, yeah, I don't think bullets would bounce off Thor in the same way they do Superman, which isn't to say Thor isn't as strong as and can have a fight with Superman on the same level, but their power sets are different, that's all. Yeah, I, 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 I've I, always... I don't want to think of my superheroes like um, Pokemon. That's it, that's if it. If you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I don't want stats. I don't There's... want... Yeah. The people who get really het up about this are the people who are like the, the Battleboards fans where it's just like they, they're looking at numbers and they're trying to get official stats and so they can officially say this person would win in this fight against this character. And it's actually Busick who constantly says, well, that's not interesting. The person that's going to win is who the writer wants to win because it's in service of a story. So, Yeah, because it's like, you, you know, it, it, it's the thing that like uh, some of the old... I don't know if it was a Marvel encyclopedia or like those kind of Marvel fact sheets you'd get where it would say mm. that like the Hulk and Thor and Wonder Man can all lift a hundred tons. Like like that was as strong as you could possibly go. Yeah. And then it's like, but Iron Man can lift 80 tons and Spider-Man can lift like five tons or, or something. You know, it was like, yeah, yeah but th- that doesn't automatically mean they're going to win mm. in a fight. You know, like if if Wonder Man's fighting Iron Man, well, Wonder Man's stronger, but Iron Man's speed is twice as much. You know, it, it doesn't that doesn't make it interesting, as you say. It's how they fight. It's how how the creators want them to do interesting things. Yep, exactly, exactly. So that, and I think that's why you get people who I think the big one online tends to be the the Thor fans against the Hulk fans. And you get them all pointing to, well, in this issue, Hulk won. Yeah, well, in this issue, Thor won. And then that one doesn't count because this, this, and this. And I'm like, doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that one was fun. Thor won. Okay, that one was fun too. And the Hulk won. So I guess that's just the circumstances of that fight. And yeah, and it's weird because I guess that's why Marvel versus DC is an odd duck <laughs> that yeah. story because it was it was listener it was it was reader votes wasn't it yeah like yeah yeah because as much as i like storm for example uh i you know would would wonder woman lose to storm you know little little things like that but again it comes down to who was more popular at the time it was a yeah. it was a popularity contest yeah and then the writers had to and they only had like two pages for each fight to do so, but they had to then work those fights out for them. I think the the trickiest one was Lobo versus Wolverine, to be honest, and that's why you don't really see the fight. They just go behind a bar, you hear some noises, and then Wolverine pops up and has a cigar. Oh, some of them are tiny, aren't they? Like, yeah. you know, barely. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have to... Oh, God, we're probably going to have to do that at some point, aren't we? Yeah, we are. But speaking of that, mm. did you see something else this week? And we've, we've been talking before about how everything comes back again. Oh, no. Because... Uh, Ben Riley was Spider-Man for that. Guess who's going to be Spider-Man again? Um, uh, think of something funny, John. Is it Ben Riley? It's Ben Riley. What? Like, uh, uh, in what context or continuity? Don't know the actual story 
context of it, but he's taking over the Amazing Spider-Man. But, well, they're doing that thing. The current creative team's leaving, so they're rebooting Amazing Spider-Man again with a new issue one and new creative team, and Ben Riley is going to be Spider-Man in it with an update to his 90s costume that looks worse. Uh, yeah, I can imagine it. Oh, why do they do this? Constant, constant, constant reiterations. Like I know. You're only going to get further away from the... Look at the Flash's costume now. Stop putting panels and patches on it and the chin strap. It was perfect the first time. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and there's a rumour that they're going to kill off Peter Parker for this, and that'll just be temporary, and my brain's going, what, again? How many times has Peter Parker died in the last ten years? It's ridiculous. <sighs> Continuity, everybody. It's uh, It's a treat. Um, PJ. Yes. PJ, PJ, PJ. Uh, should we get back into it? Let's do it. So one thing I do want to say before we discuss the issue itself, the story we're looking at today is the final issue in the Strength in Numbers collection. Mm. Now, it feels momentous. It does. For me, it's very much the end of an era. In <clears> my head, right, I have JLA divided into two eras. One is New World Order up to strength in numbers, and then the other one is basically Justice for All and World War Three. But the reason for that is that when I first started collecting JLA, strength in numbers was the last trade that had come out. Ah, and right. I, so I bought and devoured in very quick succession the first four trades, and then reread them and reread them and reread them, and had to wait a couple of years for Justice for All, and then a couple more years for World War Three. So the last two trades just somehow feel a bit separate in my head so this is the first era for me and it's the era i read and read and read and read and read and then obviously i've read the other two multiple times as well but because they came out later not so much so it's just how it divides in my brain interesting you see i would have said that new world order through to rock of ages yeah feels like an era for me uh i think strength in numbers and justice for all definitely feel of a type as well yeah and I know it's it's only one book, but I would kind of say that World War Three feels completely uh, completely different again. Yeah. as like a third a third era. Um, and like and like I've said for a while, I I feel there's an alternate history where the JLA of American Dreams just kind of carried on as it as it was, <laughs> and we just got like tons of really cool standalone stories featuring that team with Green Arrow. Oh, I miss him. It was a fun time and good old Aztec, you know, yeah. doing doing his thing. Electric Blue. Um, <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And Hatton Porter with those tight, tight, tight lines, you know, of that period of Porter. Although, and I, I said a bit of it last time, but there's stuff in that Morrison does with Superman in this issue that wouldn't been nearly as effective with Electric Blue Superman. I know it's it's a quiet hurt at this point. I just yeah. have to, you know, I, I can I can move on. I can survive. Uh, but but PJ, what's the recap? Where uh, what's happening? So everyone in North America has fallen asleep, except for a few members of the Justice League who have been joined by the Sandman. Yes, from Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. But this is Daniel, the second Sandman, because spoiler alert. There we go. Morpheus <laughs> dies during the course of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, and this is Daniel who turns up at the end of uh, the end of that run. And it turns out that people are asleep because Starro has arrived on Earth. There is a giant starfish in the oceans around in Canada, 
and it sent people to sleep and in their dreams they've got these starfish parasites on their heads and there's a boy in the dream called Michael Haney who's trying to remember Superman but can't quite get there. So Superman, Wonder Woman and Green Lantern have ventured into the dreaming to try and sort out what's going on in there while at the same time Jean, Aquaman, Zauriel, Flash and Batman are trying to deal with Starro in the real world. Yeah, and you know, if if uh, you've been feeling the loss of Aquaman of late, he's he gets some stuff to do, which is quite nice. Yeah. Um, and PJ, because I because I I think I'm quite proud of myself. I just want to say that Sandman is not to be confused with Wesley Dogs, aka the Sandman of the JSA. Yeah. Or going to go out on a limb here. Or the second Sandman from the short-lived Jack Kirby series, Hank Hall. I think that's right. Uh, who ooh. was a superhero who defended uh, children's dreams. Yes. And who also appeared, I think, oh, I know I'm bug- it's bugging me now. I think his name was Hank Hall. I don't want to look it up. Um. And who who also briefly appears in the pages of Neil Gaming's Sandman. Yes, I believe, I think, I can't remember if the name's right. Hector Hall? Because it's also, uh, I think that's a very similar name though, isn't it, to Hawk from Hawk and Dove, who became Extant? that's bugging me now. So I do get those two confused. You know what? I'll leave it. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) It's not important. Um... But yes, PJ, so uh, the world is asleep and Canada is under attack from giant um, scarfish. What are they called? And when we say giant, we mean... Echinoderms. Absolutely massive. Like, um, I wish I knew the name of this this, uh, inlet. It's like as large as the Hudson Bay, if not larger. No, maybe? Yeah, It's, it's pretty big. Yeah, uh, Jean is basically <laughs> in space and can see this starfish looking straight at him. Indeed. So, so uh, as the as the action immediately picks up, uh, we have um, Zoriel, Aquaman, and Flash. Uh, one can assume on the snowy coast of this very cold Canadian body of water, and um, Aquaman is holding. Uh, an absolutely massive length of chain, which, thanks to the Flash's narration, we learn that the Flash apparently assembled link by link. At super speed, I would imagine, rather uh, than... No, I think he took his, I think he took his time. <laughs> <laughs> but they've got that, uh, they're going to loop it around Aquaman and Zauriel's going to hold on to it so that Aquaman can jump into the water and try and communicate with the Starro that's down there because as Aquaman says I don't care how big it is it's a marine creature but then he says if anything goes wrong he'll uh, pull on the chain and Zariel can pull him out of the water the, that is a hell of a logical leap from Aquaman I have to say like yes it looks like a starfish but it also maybe has come from space like we're assuming it's a, it's a marine creature I mean what is space but the ocean of the skies. Well, I mean, that is true. Um, maybe Starro was holding its breath 
all while it was in space, and then it instantly <laughs> dunked into an ocean and was like, oh, God, thank you. Well, I mean, you made the reference earlier that this is a very Lovecraftian take on Starro, and, you know, all of Lovecraft's whatever they were, all the creatures from that, they were all both from space but also somehow under the ocean at the same time. So, you know. That is true. That is true. Yeah, because... I mean, they're both very dark and cold, and humans tend to explode or turn into a kind of pink mist if they go too far out. So Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Flash, uh, the, the League are multitasking, of course, and Flash uh, is on the snowy shores of Canada, and then a few seconds later is in Gotham, where Batman is dissecting one of the parasites from the Blue Valley incident um, last year. And he basically says, it's a kind of parasitical machine. Uh, I think it's a remote probe designed to locate and prepare suitable host environments. Uh, so yeah, so again, Batman um, doesn't have any official PhDs, but is also apparently very savvy when it comes to alien xenobiology. Yeah, and he mentions that it's a, a parasitical machine, which I think does tie slightly back to Secret Files and Origins, where there was very much a technological aspect to what was going on with the parasites. There was a spaceship and all these other stuff going on as well. But the, the, there's no sign of here. But just to sort of say this is the same thing, it's like the parasite is a living machine. It's a development of that, etc. Yeah, it's... um. It's one of those things that doesn't like need like or require an explanation. I mean, like the the big fish looks biological. Uh, you know, you'd think these are all just organisms, but yeah, I guess it just adds to the alien otherness of it. I don't think it ever is really explained whether these are no. machines or creatures, but it doesn't really matter. It's no. big and weird and creepy. Yeah. Exactly. And then Batman basically explains that it's going to take control of our minds and then our bodies and then our planet's entire ecosystem. And that's just what this thing does. Uh, and then the Flash uh, races off and he uh, dashes up the eastern seaboard uh, <laughs> up around the Arctic Circle to Europe, just like you do. Uh, he's checking on the emergency medical airlifts because I think they established that some people are still uh, awake. Is that right? Uh, yes, although it's mostly people in North America at the moment who are asleep. And to illustrate that, Flash does run past a homeless person who's clearly been drawing on the sidewalk, who, as a sign says, will wrestle for food, dressed in army fatigues, who is asleep. And, yeah, and I guess when Flash gets to Europe, um, he sees the second one. And we get an incredibly eerie shot of Flash at a kind of quiet airport and a giant identical starfish, but this time in the sky above. But still looking directly at the Flash. <laughs> yeah, which is unsettling. It is it kind really of nightmarish. Is. Like, all of this is a bit nightmarish. Yeah. Which is fitting, then, I suppose. Sean says, look, these things are... There's more of them up in space. They're floating there just waiting to latch onto the Earth. And by tomorrow, it'll be the whole world that will be asleep. And you get a... a deeply troubling image of like seven six or seven of these giant starfish just floating in space above the earth and you can see the one in the ocean in canada as well below them so bad times and again this isn't me i'm not being the guy going like well the physics doesn't work at all i actually like that it doesn't make sense yeah because like 
if a, if a, if an entity of this size and one would assume mass actually descended through the atmosphere and latched onto a planet, that would be an apocalyptic level event. Like it would it it would just explode. You know, it would be like the uh, it'd be like the asteroid, but uh, wiped out the dinosaurs. And yet Depends somehow how gently they land. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> You've no idea what's going on with these alien creatures and the fact that they can somehow descend through the atmosphere and latch onto a continent, I think it just makes it even weirder and creepier. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it also, the fact that there's many of them, but they refer to, and it is referred to many times, as almost being like one entity. Yeah, it's just referred to as it throughout the throughout the issue. Yeah, and it's like, are they all parts of one single mind or is there like an even larger intelligence somewhere out in space which is secreting these just because the smaller ones secrete the face huggers or whatever it's it's weird it's unsettling oh my god now i'm imagining the size of that one (laughs) yeah it doesn't it doesn't get explained it doesn't need to be explained it's unknowable and i like it yeah uh, but yeah, uh, but uh, we get the the league. They're on it, you know. Things look grim, but they have a plan, and uh, yeah, Jean is kind of overseeing it all from the watchtower. Yeah, uh, Jean points out, look, they are in orbit, but they're in a holding pattern, so they're waiting for something, which means we have some time. And then you see in the background, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Green Lantern all asleep on the comfy chairs Green Lantern created last issue, and this is the first time I've noticed. Kyle went to the trouble of putting their logos on the backs of the chairs as well. <laughs> Branding is everything, PJ. Yeah. Could have made some cushions, though. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but Flash says they've been asleep for almost an hour and questions whether they can trust this Sandman. Refers to him as the god of dreams. And Jean just says he's more than a god. On Mars, long ago, we knew him as Lord Lazorel. And I'm once I met him here on Earth, which I believe is a reference to that first story arc in Sandman where John yes. Constantine brings Morpheus to Jean's apartment. Is it Constantine? I think it's Constantine. Uh, yes, I'm trying to remember like, which is bad because again, um, me struggling to remember things is maybe not amazing audio but I seem to recall that it might actually be on in a JLA facility, I think when he visits him. Because... I just remember an image of Jean in a dressing gown. <laughs> Yes, and it also kind of cemented the idea that Jean loves cookies. Yeah, he's, Oreos. he's got a glass of milk and some Oreos. Because <laughs> I think another... Li- this is terrible. This is like, now tune in for another episode of John Half Remembers Things. But I think another leaguer turns up at the end after Morpheus has gone his way. And Jean is like, ah, don't worry about it. Do you want some cookies? You yeah. know, it's basically like <laughs> what John gets up to at night. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a little reference to that. Um, and then Jean just does say, we, we have no choice but to trust the Sandman. And then we cut to the nightmare. I was going to say the dream, but it is definitely a nightmare where Michael Haney, the young boy, is being dragged out of his house by his dad and the police officers. And it's, well, it's like a zombie movie, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Like, uh, everybody has a face a face-hugging starfish. Uh, and the few remaining that don't are being held to the ground, and starfishes, starfy, are being forced onto their faces. And yeah, it's like it's it's grim. 
And uh, the narration is basically saying, like, you know, it comes first in your dreams, then your dream becomes its dream, it divides, it invades, it conquers, and in the end, when you wake and open your eyes, there's no more you, there's only it. Yeah, it's <laughs> disturbing. It really is. There's There's just so much atmosphere in these words from Morrison and these images from Howard Porter and it it's it it's nightmarish and I mean that in the best way yeah and the again a, a small boy trapped in a nightmare and the only kind of saving idea is is that there's always something stronger than the monster under your bed and this is a child's belief. He just can't remember what it is. Um, and then we see uh, Wonder Woman, Superman and Kyle facing down this, I guess, army of thousands, if not millions of zombified people. And uh, yeah, it's looking pretty grim. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's key as well that after the last panel where the dial- the, the narration says, if only he could remember what that thing is, Superman's cape is flowing behind him and the S is rather prominent in the panel. And of course, they're losing their powers. Yeah. Because this is a nightmare. And, you know, Superman says, well, let's hope Sandman has something up his sleeve. And Kyle's like, yeah, yeah, like, where where did he disappear to? And then we get an amazing panel. Um, Porter really just knocking it out the park here yeah. of Daniel high on the hilltop, under under a tree, mostly in shadow, uh, kind of leaves whipping around him and and just like stars in, in all the shadows on his body. And, and it's high on a hill, the king of stories scans and watches. And this is something I absolutely love about these two issues is Porter and the rest of the art team, they do such a good job of drawing Daniel... So it's it's clearly recognisably Daniel from the Sandman comics. But because of the book he's in, they sort of have to draw him in the style of superhero comics. And the way they manage to make him fit in this book without changing how he looks is just superb, if that makes any sense. Yeah. No, <laughs> I feel like I'm talking a bit of nonsense here, but yeah, I just, I just think it's utterly so well done. It's just a real high point of this whole whole book for me. Oh, it is, yeah. And I think you can tell that Porter's having fun drawing Daniel as well. Like, I, I, every panel he's in, and I'm looking at the previous issue now, it, he, he takes so much care on him. Like, yeah. like uh, yeah, and Porter's style is, is a world away from the pages of Sandman, you know, how Daniel would normally have been depicted. Like, and, and yeah, as you say, yeah, it does him so much justice. He looks amazing. Yeah. It is superb. And speaking of that art team, we turn the page and get, well, we get a caption saying, and the dream unfolds, and then the title, Conquerors, with the credits, Grant Morrison, writer, Howard Porter, penciler, John Dell, inker, Kenny Kenny Lopez this time, letterer, (laughs) uh, Pat Garrahy, colorist, heroic age separator, L.A. Williams, assistant editor, and Dan Raspler, the editor. All above a lovely splash page of Superman, Wonder Woman, and Kyle fighting their way through Starro-possessed humans without their powers. Uh, And Kyle doing some pretty sick moves i have to say um i've always liked this shot of kyle for some reason (laughs) to me it looks like 
it, it sort of shows that Kyle is the one that doesn't have much experience fighting hand to hand and he's panicking a bit. <laughs> His arms sort of thrown up in a oh god, oh no kind of way. Um Hippolyta's just punching her way through these guys and Superman I would say not on a Hippolyta's level with hand-to-hand combat, but he is holding his own. Superman would be like a, like a boxer, I've always felt. And I'm not not like a kind of like super ripped boxer, like a kind of like a kind of 1930s works on the dock will give you a good fair fight if you ask for it sort of fighter. So there's a JLA one-shot from around this time, a, a prestige format one-shot called Foreign Bodies which I don't think we're probably going to cover, so I'm more than happy to just mention it here because I'm going to get into the ending of it. Sure. But basically, a villain, uh, I believe it's um, King Cobra, something like that, Um, but basically manages to get one of his lackeys who has weird powers to swap the League's bodies, and you spend the whole issue thinking... Loads of them swap, so Aquaman uh, ends up in Wonder Woman's body... um, Kyle ends up in Jean's body, Steel ends up in Kyle's body, and the whole time you think Superman and Batman have swapped bodies. Um, Right. Yeah, so Batman basically spends the whole thing with Superman's powers, and obviously Superman is in Batman's body. But then at the end, you find out it's not Superman in Batman's body, it's King Cobra. And Superman is in King Cobra's body, and it comes down to a hand-to-hand fight between King Cobra and Batman. Um, or Superman and King Cobra, as it were. And Superman wins in without his powers, because he's like, I've had a lifetime fighting people of a similar power to me. And so he's doing all these kicks and punches and saying things like, yep, that one took down Parasite. Doomsday didn't like that move either. And it's like, yeah, Superman would be a competent fighter, actually. <laughs> He's very much like. I imagine Superman would be the um, oh, what's the uh, Pratchett thing about the way carrot fights? Yeah, like um, he, he, uh, Kingsbury rules sort of thing. Yeah, like he he he'd make sure it was a fair fight. Oh, he doesn't fight dirty, but he takes King Cobra in Batman's body down because. Yeah, he has fought guys who have power levels similar to him, and he can't just rely on heat vision all the time with that. Wow, foreign bodies. Who knew? And it's this, and it's this iteration of the league. Yeah, so uh, I would have bought that in between Strength in Numbers and Justice for All. Huh? Never even heard of that. Well, there we go. DC was busy. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, so we cut from the nightmare to the Hudson Bay. Yes, I was right. I got it. Well done, you. Thank you. I knew living in Canada for a year would pay off. <laughs> Uh, and we have an amazing shot, a couple of a few amazing shots. Let's be honest. Um, Aquaman diving deep, deep, deep into the water uh, with you know the chain wrapped around him and bubbles streaming behind him. That is a really good panel, Howard Porter. This is John speaking to you from the future. You should be proud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it is a really cool panel. As Aquaman basically says, it's, I can only see blackness down there. I should be able to see it. And then you get another amazing panel of Zauriel just holding firm to the chain trying not to let it get too far away from him <laughs> yeah and I, I do like the because i know um zoriel and plastic man ended end up spending a lot of time together but i also like the weird uh relationship between aquaman and zoriel where they they do seem to end up working quite well together in a way 
Zoriel feels like the member of the team who just works well with everybody. Like he, he genuinely seems like everybody's friend and he gets on with all of them and can work well with all of them as well. Like he gets some great moments with Jean later on. And yeah, I, I feel like Zoriel is everyone's friend on the team. Yes, and it is weird, isn't it? Because I like Zoriel a lot, probably because he's so personable and just so mm. kind of nice. Um, but again, it's weird because he did kind of get a personality transplant between his original appearance, where he was a little acerbic. Yes. Uh, to his current one. But hey, he's a nice guy. Whatever whatever he did to have to get to that point, I'm okay with it. Um, Buck's uh, Aquaman, uh, who was communicating telepathically, we should say, um, is a little confused why he can't see the entity. Uh, but then you see his eyes widen and he goes, oh, wait, the seabed just shifted. My God. And then we... We turn, we turn the page and we get an eye, like the biggest damn eye you could ever imagine, and a tiny speck of Aquaman floating above it, and the, and the words, it just blinked. <laughs> and yeah, I love that idea that the reason Aquaman couldn't see the creature is because it was too big and actually he was just staring into the blackness of its eye and the fact that the eye doesn't even fit on the page and this is mostly a splash page <laughs> it's just it's oh porter is so good at this stuff oh yeah because again i think there was a similar uh, effect in the previous issue and it it just gives the impression of being too large for the page yeah. Like, too large for our conception of reality, because this story is confined to the dimensions of this page. And the <laughs> and the star, Starro, the Star Conqueror, is too big for the page. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's just bursting out of the comic. And, and I, I do like there's little shoals of fish and dolphins and stuff kind of <laughs> swimming above it, just to give some sense of scale. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, damn, I love this issue. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, and... Um, Aquaman uh, attempts uh, a telepathic probe, and I do like that you get little kind of rings of telepathic energy coming out of his head, which almost seems like a an homage to how his powers used to be depicted. Um, I think I think that's how they were depicted in the uh, the old Aquaman cartoon as well. So <laughs> there's a noise I can hear it in my head, like I I, I associate like a whoop 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 whoop. Yes, sort of. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and. Now, Aquaman attempts to make telepathic contact with this creature because it is marine life, as he said, and he can do that. And you get a wonderfully weird effect where he tries to make contact and you get a thought bubble uh, just full of, like, a squiggle of black dotted with stars. Mm. Like, (laughs) I don't know, like, a visual representation of the immensity of space and the the horror of existence maybe yeah and then oh he just says feel it there are oceans too big and then the next panel the weirdness just doubles down as aquaman is somehow still in the ocean but also in a weird 3d fractal space with like a web funnel coming towards him and bubbles with little star rows in them and he's it looks like he's free falling into it uh, yeah, and again, we have to remind ourselves that this was uh, October 1998, and there was a fun new thing called computers. Um, 
and, and 3D graphics. And uh, clearly the team that used to do the 3D titles uh, had time on their hands and, and they were able... Yeah, this is this is a, a composite shot, isn't it? This is, mm. this is actually some kind of... Well, I don't know, actually. Maybe it isn't. I thought this may have been like rendered in 3D, but I, I could be wrong. The the web funnel thing looks like it must have been. There's some weird digital effects. I'm, I'm almost yeah. certain. Yeah. But it, but it again, looks it, cool, whatever it is. Yeah, and a great shot of... Even if um, Porter only had to draw like Aquaman kind of free-falling, it's a great, yeah. shot, great shot of Aquaman. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But it, it feels like the Conqueror is sort of taking over Aquaman's mind. Um, he says it oceans beyond space and time gravity sewers it crawls free it divides it invades and then aquaman tries to fight back he says no i rule the seas but then the conqueror is saying older than time it will not kneel it divides it conquers so jean who can sort of feel what's happening to aquaman says look it's infiltrating your consciousness let me work with you to prevent this i'm more experienced in psycho combat techniques than you are so jean sort of lends his telepathic weight to aquaman's mind as well and uh, a little shout out to uh, kenny lopez on the lettering front because it's, it's a small effect but it's kind of fun that um the font size varies so much here and it is always massive compared yeah. to everything else like it it divides it invades it's it's a yeah simple little effect but i like it yeah it's very cool but then we cut to the flash who's studying files that he says are on similar creatures jean encountered with the old league so i think that must be a reference to that late 80s justice league issue uh although the images we see are from secret files and origins one yeah that's maybe a little uh confusing come to think of it because that's definitely kyle getting yeah that is a shot from Secret Files and Origins 1 when the Spectre shows them the future, what might happen if they do go to Blue Valley and the Star Conqueror takes them over while they're fully powered up. Just a random thought. If if that is a direct panel, which has been com- composited in... I'm sure it is. Do you suppose that was a case where it's like Porter had to draw some blank screens and they're like, well, we'll pull up a panel and we'll drop it in using, I don't know, Photoshop 1... Yeah. This is 1998. Um, what if they couldn't find those panels? Get some other panels? I guess Porter would have had to redraw them. That's what I'm wondering. No, this is what I'm wondering. Like maybe because the dialogue says that Flash is looking at, you know, an encounter that the the old league experienced. Yeah. And what if whoever was doing that compositing like genuinely couldn't find a 1998 JPEG of those original creatures? Yeah, potentially. And they they put in a they put in panels from Secret Files and Origins instead. That would make sense because yeah, that would that because I guess they're sort of small enough that you can just about get away from it, get get away with it. There's not enough detail there for that to de- it, it obviously is Kyle, but you could easily say that's someone else and then John and Batman who were members of the league, I think at that point because that would have been around the international period. So I guess it ultimately doesn't matter. I don't no, want to really. think it or not. But but yeah, it's just interesting that you're right. The fact the fact that Flash says the old league, that would be a weird way of referring to the Magnificent uh, Seven to a team he was on. <laughs> yes, when he says his exact uh, creatures, you and the old league encountered John. Oh, and me, I was there too. 
So yeah, yeah, I think I think this is Morrison saying that they're aware of this story from the late eighties that featured Starro and just having a little reference back to it so that we know that they're on top of the continuity. Yeah, I was, and it's again not a criticism because you know twenty two pages of impeccable artwork had to be produced in a month for this to come out. But yeah, I just wonder if the editorial team were not able to source an image from like in nineteen ninety eight, like how much of DC's back catalogue had been digitised. Yeah. Yeah, probably not a lot of it. Um, but yeah, before um, you know, uh, nitpickers like us can can jump on that sort of thing, um, a boom tube opens and um, a familiar silhouette uh, <laughs> is moving towards us and I like that Flash is not happy and just goes, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> it looks like Orion is, is, is on the case. <laughs> and... I feel like at the moment, Flash isn't sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. No, he is something of a liability, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> then we cut back to the Dreaming, where Superman and Wonder Woman are still fighting the Starro-possessed population, uh, and Superman shouts that Green Lantern's down and they have to help him. But Hippolyta points out, look, we have a child to save. Just leave Kyle. He's fine. Let him die. <laughs> Yeah, um, a ruthless pragmatism, uh, and even so, and even sacrificing herself because she says, "Look, I'll clear a path. I'll hold them. You, you go. You get there." And we have to assume that she falls like yep. off panel, and we see Superman like battling his way forward, uh, minus his powers, and he's being dogpiled basically. Um, but a swarm of people jumping on him, uh, pinning him down, one holding uh, a, a parasite ready to put on his face. And, uh, yeah, we we get the narration again because uh, from, from Michael, the, the kid, because, you know, he says that he always knew, he always believed that there was something missing from the world, that there was something bigger and stronger than it. And these two scenes kind of finally converge because we see Michael in his garden, about to have like a parasite kind of pinned onto his face. And in the background, I, I think we see Superman falling. We see him being possessed. Mm. And then he says that not far away, grotesque and human shouting dies away as the combat's over. Superman's lost. And then for the next panel is a starfished possessed Superman looming over Michael Haney. And that's bloody scary <laughs> it's it's an image but even though superman's face is covered his chest his costume the og superman as bright as day uh and yeah michael with a parasite inches from his face goes and then he remembers everything and he says he says the word superman and uh Superman's powers return, and he blasts for hell out of this parasite on his face. It's a pretty gruesome sight, actually. You see that the heat vision just erupts from Superman's eyes, and the parasite's eye is, like, ripped from the rest of the the body, and there's just holes torn in the middle of it, and, yeah, it's, it's pretty gruesome, but Superman's back, and he can fly again, and he grabs Michael and flies off, as Michael says, faster than a speeding bullet, and Superman just says... I've got you, son. And this is the page I was talking about that I don't think would have been as effective with Electric Blue Superman. No. 
Because it's the you, iconography here that really that really sells this. And you were right to point out because it, it never occurred to me that this is Morrison's first story back with True Blue Superman. Yeah. And yeah, and it just so happens to be a story about the iconography and symbolism of Superman. So you have to feel that was intentional on on Morrison's part. They did some amazing things with Electric Blue Superman, but this is Morrison saying this is my Superman. This is the one I wanted on the team all along. He is back. We are all back together, and this is what he can do. Yeah, and you know, as we mentioned in the previous episode, I think so much of Morrison's work is about the transformative power of superheroes. And yes, this is a nightmare about you know a boy is trapped in a nightmare where parasitic scarfish are taking over the world, but it's also kind of our world because it's a world without Superman yeah. and. It's sad. It's sad that we don't we we live in a world without Superman. And yeah, a child would believe that whatever the monster, there is something bigger and stronger and better, and it's Superman. So yeah. Also, Porter draws the heck out of that page. <laughs> I do wonder if um, there was a note in the script saying, "Hey, Howard, it's uh, it's Moza here. It's uh, it's Grant." Um, Moza, Moza, yeah. I should have mentioned earlier, Chris, uh, Chris Murphy in his in his email referred to Grant Morrison as G Moz, which oh, okay. I thought was fantastic. <laughs> um, so, hey, 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 Porter, it's uh, G Moz here. Um, this is the iconic one. This yeah. panel has to be iconic Superman. So, really, make the chin. You know, we need <laughs> we need that chin to be chiseled, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, yeah. But then we cut away from Chiseled Superman to the JLA Watchtower and a close-up of Orion's eyes behind his mask as basically Flash explains what's going on, what's happened, and that they've got these big starfish problems. And then we don't really see Orion for the rest of this page. It's all on Flash and Jean as Orion says, Ah, cosmic mutations born from the eternal slurry of the old universe. (laughs) Let them face the full fury of the Astro Force. And Flash says, uh, okay, well, we need your help. And Orion just says, stand aside! And then the boom tube goes off again. As Flash tries to shout, wait, Aquaman and Zauriel are down, as one word, but Orion's gone. I, thinking about the fact that if you exclude or ignore the four Wade issues we just had, yeah, this is Morrison's first Orion you know moment yeah uh, from from uh, you know orion and barda suddenly turning up at the end of the prometheus story arc and i, I find it very that, int- but yeah and i find it very interesting that for these two panels or so um we haven't gotten a cl- these two pages or so we haven't gotten a clear shot of orion like he's always off panel or he's in like an intense close-up like he comes across as very menacing and himself kind of like unknowable and a little alien. Like you really don't know what he's going to do or how he's going to respond. Um, and I just find it it's interesting because I kind of imagine that this is how Morrison intended to like introduce Orion. This is the first Orion moment. It's just kind of weird that with the guest appearances of, of Wade, hmm. um, we actually had a few kind of, not many, but a couple of like humanizing moments with Orion. Yeah. Under a different writer. Whereas like, this is almost not like like, like a retcon, but this is almost, it, it still works. But it's almost like, oh, this is kind of how Morrison wanted to 
give Orion his first moment as this kind of, well, an a- this alien moment where they're like, oh my God, what the hell is he going to do? Yeah, like Flash is genuinely worried and Jean says, look, it- its mind is primitive but on- but monstrous in scale. Aquaman needs my help. You warn Zauriel. And then you get an amazing, like almost two thirds of the page panel shot of Orion flying towards you through space. And it's very Kirby, this image, and I love it. It's just, it's a big, powerful Orion with his cosmic harness thing that he flies around on with all those Kirby details in it. But it, it feels very much like Porter's take on a Kirby drawing. This is, this is a direct, this panel is a direct homage to the first ever shot of Orion, is it not? Which I think was a cover that Kirby drew. I think it must be, yeah. This is almost this is almost the quint. I, I can I can picture the image that Kirby drew. This is the quintessential Orion shot, and it's weird in a way because there's something very iconic about Orion, but in the way in the in the way that so much of the New God mythology is, there's also something incredibly weird about the fact that he right. He, that he has this cosmic harness. Like, there's nothing else like it. I've never yeah. seen another character in comics wield or wear something as weird as this. And it's such a quintessentially Kirby design as well. Just the shape of it, the way the the pipes flow into it and everything and all the detailing on it. It's so quintessentially Kirby and it's a design no one's ever improved on whenever <laughs> they've tried to update Orion's look or anything. And I love that Porter just goes classic. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I kind of imagine that this is what Morrison was kind of imagining. There are a lot of iconic depictions of characters in this story, be it Orion, be it Superman, be it Daniel. They're all playing to some kind of like larger archetypal representation of their of their character. Yeah, well, you've got to remember as well, this is the way Morrison's telling this story. It's playing with godlike beings in terms of Starro is like an old godlike creature from the the primal dawn of the universe. Daniel is referred to as the god of dreams, and Orion is a new god and one of the the god of war for New Genesis and Apocalypse. So it's an, just another godlike being entering this 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 story. It's nuts. I I do love how um, it reminds me of moments in Rock of Ages where when Metron or the false Metron turns up. And everyone's like, oh, crap, it's going cosmic. Yeah. You know, it's like if you're a superhero and you've been in this line of work long enough, you're going to come up with weird cosmic god mythology. And it's just like, oh, Jesus, this is such a headache. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine like having Orion as your colleague is like having a colleague in the office who's gotten really into something like um, fly fishing. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like... Hey, hey, Orion, how was your weekend? And then he just he's off on one and you just will talk about nothing but fly fishing. And it's like, so hey, hey, Orion, we've kind of got like a big um, starfish situation. And then he's like, cosmic mutations spawn from the eternal slurry of the old universe. Yep, yeah, it's fine. I'll just leave you to it, shall we? <laughs> <You know? laughs> they the do come across is- as alien. They are yeah. they, The new gogs are alien and weird here. Yeah, and the problem is leaving Orion to it puts Zariel and Aquaman in danger. So Flash does shout a warning over the communicators to say, you know, get Aquaman out of the ocean, Orion's incoming. And then you get a panel of Orion just firing energy blasts down towards the Earth. The Astro Force, 
Yeah. Um, which, as we turn the page, uh, hits like a kind of orbital particle cannon, for lack of a better word. And again, kudos to Porter, because in comics, it's hard to draw a beam of energy that feels like it has, well, for lack of a better word, energy. Um, and here we see this beam descending from space, uh, blasting into the surface of the Hudson Bay, S- vaporizing the water, like sending up kind of like beams, uh, great clouds of smoke. And I do like that there's like a, a trough cut into the water. Yeah. As if like this beam is kind of sweeping across the ground. It's the small the, the small details here that, that Porter draws in, like that trough, that, that just really sell it and and you know, the steam rising from the water, the smaller bubbles bubbling away around the impact site, the huge splash. It just it's have we sung his praises enough, or am I just going to have to keep doing it? Uh, if we haven't done it in the preceding 36 episodes or whatever, um, <laughs> we're certainly making it up, making up for it here. Because this is, yeah, like he's earning his paycheck here, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, and, and we have uh, we have Zoriel on, on the shoreline holding the chain, just stunned by the sheer power of it, just going, great God. And uh, we then see Jean flying along in one of the Martian jump ships that they've got in his natural Martian state, radioing Batman to say, look, um, all my telepathic energies are, are helping Aquaman at the moment. I cannot spare them. So calling you the old-fashioned way, have you made any progress? Which, again, a nice small touch. Yeah. Completely needless that Jean has to communicate via radio, but it's cool because it's there. It just, it, it's nice. Um yeah, and then, and then we cut to uh, Alien Surgeon Simulator 1998 because Batman, <laughs> um, who doesn't punch a single thing in this entire two-parter, no? is proving that his brain is the League's greatest asset because he continues to be dissecting this parasite. And I do like it. He says, if I'm right, and I don't think we have time for me to be wrong, these things are designed to send out some kind of signal, like flowers attracting bees... It occurs to me that a little negative reinforcement might possibly produce an opposite repelling signal. And he asks John whether he could come up with some kind of telepathic broadcast which would convince the entities that Earth is a hostile environment. Yeah, and I, I do love the, uh, and I don't think we have time for me to be wrong moment, because I'm like, he's Batman, he doesn't think he's wrong, he's just being modest. But I also like... It's maybe like, uh, oh God, I, I'm reminded of, I think there's a moment in Star Trek, which uh, the next gen, where you might be able to, you are the authority <laughs> on that, PJ, where <laughs> isn't something like Picard and Beverly Crusher are telepathically linked? Oh, yes. Yeah. And he goes, we've got to go this way. And she goes, you have no idea. You're just saying things in a commanding voice. And he's like, yes, that's what that's what being in charge is. Yeah. <laughs> Some, sometimes <laughs> you have to make a decision. Because again, like, I kind of wager that from Batman's perspective, most of this is bullshit and, and pseudoscience, but <laughs> it's like these are desperate times and sometimes bullshit and pseudoscience are all we have to save the day. And I'm a superhero, so we're going to do it. Yep. Yep. But it works. He's Batman, so they trust him. Uh, meanwhile, it turns out Orion has wounded the Star Conqueror. Yeah, and we... You know, I almost feel for the creature because it always hurts when you get something in your eye. Um, 
but we see that it has like a great big scorched crater kind of on the side of its eyelid, mm. uh, which is it's a big blast, but still kind of tiny compared to the overall mass of this thing. And as Orion kind of swoops in overhead, the eye pivots to look at it, to look at him, and there's a great big Kirby crackle. It's starting to glow a uh, 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 malevolent orange colour as well. And we get a brief panicked close-up of Aquaman, who's still connected to the thing, and goes, pain, it's in shock, defensive systems, retaliate, it's going to... Aww. And then... Um, well, Orion's blast was pretty impressive. This is much bigger. Yeah. And a beam erupts out of the Hudson Bay. And then we get this incredible panel of Orion, like, utterly consumed in the blast. Um, we're kind of talking, like, heart of an atomic explosion sort of thing. Yeah. Like, it's the most bleached out, amazing silhouette. It's so cool. Yeah, the the first panel there of, of the beam erupting from the Hudson and all the, again... Porter doing stunning things with water around it just to really sell the power of it and the energy crackling around it. And then, yeah, the close-up of Orion caught in the beam. Wow. Yeah, I mean, sometimes less is more. Like, nothing but enhanced, you know, very stark shadows, very minimalistic. But, yeah, I think white hot is probably the only the only description I can think of here. Yeah. Yeah, it's... oh. Man, I love this art team. <laughs> They're really doing well here, I've got to say. Um, but yeah, PJ, uh, uh, you see Zoriel kind of scream Aquaman's name and then start hauling on the chain. Yep, just flies up into the sky, pulling on it with all his strength. And then we cut to outer space where Orion is burnt and his harness is in pieces as he just floats in space. But Jean arrives with the jump ship and these <laughs> little hands these little mechanical hands fly out of the front of the ship to just grab orion and pull him back towards jean as jean radios to batman saying look i've got orion um do we have the signal yet and where's aquaman and it's just when you think porter you know must 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 need a rest now it's just going to phone it in uh he doesn't because we get this absolutely amazing page um of zoriel kind of slowly agonizingly pulling Aquaman out of this kind of maelstrom of fire. And it it just it's stunning, PJ. Like it it, it looked the colour in particular, the, the the silhouettes here, it's just amazing. Yeah. yeah. And Aquaman's sort of slowly climbing up the chain, I think, a little bit as well, towards Zariel, so Zariel can grab his hand and pull him out of it. And he then says, the fish and fowl team do the impossible. <laughs> and Aquaman goes Zoriel, I owe you my life but don't ever call us that again and uh, telepathically requests that he says that he will make a formal complaint about Orion's conduct later because Aquaman's all business, he still has time for the, the official channels yeah, he's a, he's, he's a big fan of um, rules and regulations, old Aquaman being a, being a noble a king Um <laughs> And uh, this next panel, weirdly enough, I've always enjoyed this panel uh, of uh, Zoriel kind of uh, holding Aquaman, flying high above this still kind of just blazing mass of Kirby energy. And um, yeah, they have a plan. Zhang starts broadcasting an alien transmission sequence to Aquaman. 
Yeah, and he says, I need you to pass it through your consciousness, maintain contact with the creature and radiate it to there. And you then get a lovely shot of Zauriel still holding Aquaman aloft and Aquaman telepathically reaching out to the Conqueror. And again, you see the, the telepathic circles emanating from, well, in this case, his beard, into the eye below the ocean. Yeah, it's 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 weird, isn't it? Because I guess if you were if you were designing the league from scratch uh, and trying to come up with complementary characters, you probably wouldn't have two characters with telepathic abilities. Hmm. Um, which is one of the things I like actually about the league is that they weren't. It wasn't designed as a committee. The Magnificent Seven are they were all characters in their own right before they became the league. So it's all just one of those weird little quirks that. You know, on the league, we happen to have a fully telepathic member and also a slightly telepathic guy. And it's just an interesting combination of their powers here. Yeah. But as they begin their attack on on the Conqueror, we cut back to the Dreaming, where Superman is flying above the uh, controlled populace with Michael in his arms. And the the starfish-controlled people are all starting to clutch their heads, almost in pain. Yeah, and Superman is... You know, Michael Haney's like, you know, you're real. I knew you were real. And Superman says, and your belief saved us. But then he's also just business. He's like, look, okay, I'm going to put you down outside the town where you'll be safe. Uh, if you need me, just call. I'll hear because I'm Superman. <laughs> and then I'm going to go kick some ass. He doesn't say that, but, you know, you it's imagine. Implicit. Yeah, <laughs> it's implied there's going to be a whooping. Um, and then the sky cracks. And um, there is a giant... Scarfish, surprising nobody, floating above this town, staring down. And beyond it, through this cracked veil of this fake sky, you just see the endless expanse of, of space. And, uh, yeah, it uh, it can no longer hide, as it says. Uh, and it also knows, thanks to the psychic kind of um, signal that's being broadcast, that uh, Earth is toxic. Um, it cannot conquer this place. Yeah, and you get Kyle pulling a starfish off his face, uh, leaving some rather grim-looking slime behind, just basically saying, look, so this is a dream, right? That's that's where we are, we're in a dream, so that means I can basically do anything? As Wonder Woman asks Daniel, what is it? And Daniel says, just a nightmare, nothing else. And Kyle creates a whole fleet of spaceships to fly at the Conqueror and uh, just start blasting it to pieces. Yeah. um, uh, And I don't know if this is the point where you are meant to feel a little sorry for the... uh... Uh, for the conqueror because it starts to be it looks panicked now yeah um yeah as as its poor eye is blasted repeatedly by fighter jets uh and uh yeah everybody around them is 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 peeling off their parasites and uh superman flies down and he's like hey look you know we saved the boy how do we defeat this thing and daniel's like hey you've you've done your job the dream is over and uh you see the three of them back in the physical world kind of scurring in their chairs. And again, you get this wonderful few panels here where... This you know, is we pure talk, Sandman, this bit. This is pure Sandman, yeah. We, we, we've a few instances where it, the, the Conqueror, has been like outside the page, kind of peering in. And we get that effect again, but it's like for the first time, the 
tables have been turned and now it looks terrified yeah so you get three panels which are hand drawn and they're not they're not straight lines they are hand drawn which is a very sandman touch you get a lot of that in the main sandman book where the shapes of the panels are not uniform and in the first one daniel is sort of in the distance walking towards us across the grass as it says it tries to run the second one daniel is getting closer surrounded by stars it tries to hide and then in the third panel daniel fills it and he's reaching out towards it with sand falling from his fingers as his eyes shine brightly and the the, the narration just says but the dream is everywhere and Kyle wakes up like with a with a shout and to his credit uh none of the chairs they're sitting on uh disappear which is quite amazing and uh yeah they're all waking up and and flash goes you told you told me to wake you up in an hour time's up and they all kind of like you know they they, they look a little groggy they're all kind of like you know shaking their heads and superman's like flash what happened did we do it and flash just smiles and goes we have a Justice League, Superman. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's morning. Sun rises in America and Flash comes on the radio and basically announces to everyone, hey, everything's good as people start waking up. Uh, yeah, you get a shot of... I think that might be Linda Flash's girlfriend. It's not meant to be... Lois Lane, is or it? Or it might be Lois. I'm not 100% sure. Cause, cause, oh, yeah, because Superman's pajamas are on the floor. Yes, you're right. That is Lois uh, waking up from her bed. And then we see the homeless man that Flash ran past earlier, wiping his eyes, his drawings on the sidewalk. And it says, Michael Haney wakes and sniffs the air and feels the weight of the real world settle on his shoulders. This homeless man was the child in the dreaming. Yeah, and... As a nice little touch, he goes, he remembers being a little boy. He remembers being carried through the air, far from care. He remembers saving the world. But that's always been the thing about Michael. Too vivid an imagination. And we see that his begging hat is full of gold coins. And Daniel kind of walks quietly off into the background. And again, this panel... I've said it many times, but this is, again, a very Sandman panel with Daniel just walking away in more... It's it's a very similar version of the, the outfit Morpheus would wear when he was in the real world. So he's got the big coat on and, and the boots. And, yeah, just... I love it. It's so good. Such a lovely touch. And, uh, yeah, and then we get uh, an epilogue where we see a close-up a familiar close-up, something we've seen several times in these two issues, of it and its eye. And it's filling the panel, something we're kind of used to. But its eye looks panicked. It's kind of glancing about randomly. And it goes, somewhere it struggles to move, to divide. It is aware. It knows. And what it knows is fear. And we, we, the camera kind of pulls out and we see that it's actually tiny and it is a, like a, a string of, like a, like a, like a necklace yeah. with all, all the, all the stars kind of like 
bound and kind of like just in the hands of Daniel, who's holding it like it's nothing but a trinket. And uh, it goes, it comprehends at last the truth all conquerors learn. There's always someone bigger than you are. Yeah. And then you get a final panel of a chest filled with items, including a fishbowl with the star rose in it, just swimming around a castle. Also the Corinthian skull. But uh, as behind it, Daniel sits on his throne and just says, the debt you owe to that little universe is now repaid, Morpheus. And, yeah, and it closes. In the limitless mansions of the King of Scories, one dream ends. And the other little cameo is in the treasure chest is the glass bottle where the demon Azazel Mm. is contained. Last seen in Sandman Volume 4, Season of Mists. I think so, yeah. I think I've got that right. I think that's kind of, I was ingrained on my memory somewhere. (laughs) Uh, The end. I mean, not just of an issue, but of a a trade paperback. Yeah. Yep. There we go. Wow. Wow. I mean, what a way to end. Yeah. That is... What? Oh, it's so, so good. <laughs> it is good. I... I uh... Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you... It's interesting that you said that you, you thought this might be like your favourite story in the entire run and I'd always thought very highly of it but I'd never really considered it my favourite however (laughs) visiting it again I think it's going to be an incredibly strong contender for you know I think we'll have to do some kind of roundup at the end of this and I don't want to make any commitments now but like my god it's up there you know I mean, look, we we haven't. Re- there's a lot we haven't revisited yet. You know, there's some great stuff coming up. Crisis Times Five is brilliant. Uh, World War Three, obviously. A uh, couple of one and two parters that I really, really like. DC One Million, which I have very, not much memory of, if I'm honest. But I mean, that is just this entire creative team working on such a high level. Like, there's some of my absolute favourite Howard Porter art in this. Morrison's writing is you know they're really bringing their A game and yeah it's 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 a team just working in perfect harmony to create something very special and something like fundamentally weird as well like um I think it's a credit to this series that like when you have all the best action figures uh which is basically what the league is you know when Morrison has assembled the dream team and has the power to do anything with these incredibly powerful superheroes, you know. And it's a credit to Morrison and the creative team that in this run, they find so many interesting and different scenarios for the heroes to use their powers and and think creatively. Like, it's, it's... in many ways, it's kind of like Monster of the Week occasionally, but it's also it's never just here's a big thing for you to punch. It's always very creative, for lack of a better word. And I would later go on to read more and more of Morrison's back catalogue, and obviously their work in the eighties is even weirder. Mm. But I think this is like the perfect fusion of like Morrison's inherent weirdness, which I love. 
and also just the ability to tell like a really good blockbuster story yeah it's it the reason i think it works so well for me personally is it's just got so many of my favorite things in it you know i love a bit of weirdness i love a giant unknowable creature from beyond the stars i i love stories that play around with with dreams and that are stories about stories i love that it's superman as the iconic myth in there and you still also just get like the the crazy weird superhero beats and and some silliness in there as well like zauriel calling himself an aquaman the fish and fowl team is <laughs> a brilliant line i love that gag aquaman i'm going to register a formal complaint about orion in the middle of this big battle they're having with this monster it's it's crazy and it's also good also i love the way that and it's just a small detail that morrison sets up the team that we're going to have for this story in the first issue and then brings Orion in as well in the second issue. Like Orion mm. and Bard are mentioned in the first one, but then Orion doesn't appear until the second issue. And it's not often you get a team changing that way in the second part of a two-part story where you'll bring in another member. And I, I just it's a nice little thing that I like. Well, yeah, and I think you'd pointed out, which is something I'd never really picked up on, is that with a greater cast of 14 heroes... Morrison can and does pick and choose which Wongs are active in a story, which is which is a wonderfully simple little way of keeping it fresh. And um, I love how everybody has something to do in this yes. story. Like, everybody has a reason for being there and, and, and uses their abilities or knowledge or personality in an interesting way. Um, like, it could be argued that Oh, Wonder Woman doesn't do a massive amount in this story. But also, by having her there, you get really interesting interactions between her and Daniel. You know, you you get that wonderful comparison where in the dream, they all perceive the home, th- th- this town as being like their home place, you know, be it Kansas, be it uh, Themyscira, you know, there's a reason for her to be there beyond just, oh, I'm going to punch someone. This is the only story as well where it feels to me like you couldn't take Hippolyta out and just drop Diana in and it would be exactly the same. This mm. one, it does feel like Hippolyta does feel like a slightly different character to Diana. And this is the last issue that Hippolyta's in. Diana's back as of the next one we'll be looking at. So this is this is the end of Hippolyta's run with the Justice. She'll be back in the comic, but she won't be a member of the team again. Um, but this is the one where actually it does feel like, yeah, this is a slightly different Wonder Woman. And I think it's the only time it happens in the book. I don't think Hippolyta is very well served through her brief period on the JLA. No, I'm trying to think about it, actually, because obviously Wonder Woman is quote-unquote dead in Rock of Ages. Yeah. Which began in September 97, and then she returns at the start of Justice for All. Sorry, spoilers, everyone. Uh, and it's December 98. So, like, Wonder Woman was dead for about a year, yeah. if that, in comics continuity. Which, again, yes. is, I don't know. It's why I always take <laughs> deaths in comics. Deaths in superhero comics are so rarely permanent. Like... Um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, credit interesting point because I guess Morrison only really writes two stories where 
Hippolyta has taken Diana's place, and that's Prometheus's arc and yeah. this one. And interesting yeah. and in both stories, Hippolyta does act differently as a different character to how Wonder Woman would. Like she comments in the Prometheus story that she actually says, I have less experience in these scenarios. I'm sure Diana would have known what to do. Yeah, that's true. There is that little moment, but it's only one or two moments in the... She doesn't get a lot to do in the Prometheus no. storyline, where she does that. But this one, it does feel like there's more to do. But then, yeah, in the other issues that Wade writes, it just feels like Diana, but with the name Diana crossed out and Hippolyta written over it. Yeah, and I would say just kudos to, to Morrison, really, because, again, be, this will be, this is a situation where it's like you are told by editorial, you know because it's a, it's a wider DC universe. Like what happens in one story is approved by editors and, and will have impacts for others. But yeah, like if you're writing the JLA, you have no control as to what's going on in the pages of Wonder Woman. And yeah, you're told ahead of Rock of Ages. Oh yeah, she's dead, by the way. Yeah. And then Morrison's like, well, okay, I'll have her alive in the future. You know, or, uh, oh, by the way, Hippolyta is now Wonder Woman. It's like, okay. You know, I'll uh, I'll make at, at least at least Morrison took the time to have at least a couple of interesting moments where she does feel like a different character. Yeah, I I feel like I'm, I don't know. I haven't read those issues, and I probably never will. But I, I think it was Diana would have died, and then Hippolyta took over pretty quickly. But I think it was at the beginning of that run of Wonder Woman stories where Hippolyta was Wonder Woman that she goes back in time and joins the Justice Society, hence her absence from Rock of Ages, and then she's back in the present just in time to join the League for Strength in Numbers. I think that's how I, I've got it worked out in my head. As I haven't read the issues, and I won't, because I don't <sighs> care for what John Byrne was doing at that time. Oh, <laughs> it's, so, it's so weird to me. Wait, the fact I've said it before, I'll say it again. When you told me that Hippolyta time-travelled... I know. I was like, what? <laughs> that does... I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's a... It's an incongruous moment of Wonder Woman history that various creative teams have had to wrestle with over the years. Yeah. And I think they've now settled on the idea that she's... Wonder Woman, Diana, is very long-lived. Like, that seems to be the current take on it, if I understand that correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, at this point in continuity, Diana didn't arrive in Man's World and had never been there until two or three years after the Justice League formed. Yeah. Which again, weird, you know, and, and we're talking post-crisis as well. So, yeah, yeah. it is odd, isn't it? Because the the problem they have is that, on the one hand, you want to there's a school of thought which is like Superman is the first superhero, yeah, and he inspires or or causes others to come out of the shadows. Um, but then, because the DC continuity spans many decades and has absorbed many individual companies over the years with long publishing histories you've also got to explain how there were superheroes during world war ii yep or how there were pulp heroes i mean um what was it the crimson avenger or whatever the the supposed first superhero in the dc universe yeah it's a nightmare i don't envy i don't envy the team trying to make sense of this all to be honest yeah, and I think, th- of course, the other issue they have is when Superman 
first came out and then the other heroes followed in the late 30s and early 40s they had the justice society of america which had superman batman and wonder woman on it when they were first published and then of course all the other heroes sort of fade away and it's only really those three who stay in publication constantly throughout the 40s and 50s until the new superhero boom in the early 60s and yeah it gets weird then and that's when you bring in earth one and earth two Oh boy! I mean, yeah, God, what a nightmare. But anyway, PJ, um, we are we're at a another junction point now, aren't we? Because uh, while we could be pressing on into justice for all, I think we've made the decision that we will now be taking a slight detour into JLA one million. Yeah, or as my trade paperback collection has it, just DC 1 million. It doesn't mention JLA on there. You wouldn't know it was a JLA book. Which is so weird, isn't it? Because it was... uh, We think chronologically that this is the only point where it fits into the series. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, But it was a completely separate event book. And also there were a lot of individual issue tie-ins. Yeah, basically every was it going for three months? DC one million, I think. It was a three. There were three issues of the main book, wasn't it? Um, Yeah, because you get every single book DC was publishing then at that point. Then had a special one million issue during those three months, which vaguely tied into the main story. I I didn't read many of them, just the ones for the DC books I was collecting at the time. So I did have Young Justice one million, which was oh really interesting. had, but it has an absolutely no bearing or relevance on the plot of DC One Million. They just sort of told stories of the One Million versions of those characters. Yeah, because the gimmick, the with the gimmick being, and and it is a gimmick, but I think it's a vaguely interesting one. And I wonder if Morrison's fingers were all over it. But the idea being that if you accelerated every current ish- title that DC was publishing to issue One Million, assuming that you were publishing one issue a month. Yeah. What year would it be? And it's something like it's the 857th thousandth century or something like that. And 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 so yeah, we we jump to the future or we have characters from the future coming back to the past and the reason I wonder if if cuz that's such a weird concept and and so weirdly specific to say, oh yeah, it's the 857th thousandth century. And and Morrison has returned to these characters so many times in mm. different iter- in different continuities and different iterations. I wonder if Morrison was one of the architects of this event. Well, he, I th- I think they must have been because they they write the main book for it, don't they? And yeah, I I feel like Wade had a hand in it as well, though, because the Flash one million has come back a few times too during <sighs> Wade's Flash run. Yes. Yes, that's a good point, actually, because we'll be getting into this in more detail. But, uh, yeah, the Flash in this story is... He's a time traveller that Flash, that Wally has already encountered, I think. Yeah, who isn't actually from the same year as Justice Legion A. (laughs) Um, I think he's from an era in between what was then the present day and the future that they visit in DC 1 million, but who travels in time and joins that version of the JLA. And and yeah, and I'm just thinking about it because you know for many years uh, the one million storyline was like a, a lost gem 
for me. Like I'd always heard about it. And obviously it's referenced in, in the pages of volume five, but um, I'd never found it. Like it, it just, it wasn't, it didn't seem to appear in uh, my regular bookshop. And it wasn't until years later that I, I picked it up in uh, Travelling Man in York. <laughs> and uh, I think there's a lot to like in One Million. So I I bought it. Titan definitely put out an edition, like they were putting out the JLA books. Um, basically, they just took the DC book, took the DC logo off and put Titan books on it. And so most of my JLAs up to this point are Titan publications, and I bought them when I was working in the bookshop. And after Strength in Numbers, when I knew the next volume wasn't coming out for a while, I was just looking for other stuff I could read, and DC 1 million popped up. So I thought, oh, I'll give that a go. And that's when I realized it was part of the main series. But for some reason, I haven't read it as many times. as It doesn't normally feature heavily in my rereads. So I think I've only read it two or three times in total. So I don't remember it that well. Well, this will be a fun. This will be a fun experience for us both. Then we'll 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 have to we'll try and work out how best to divide it up because it's far too much for one issue. But I think as we've talked about it off air, because it is both the the mini series and a few kind of assorted pages, not even whole issues from different tie-in stories we're gonna to have to be creative as to where we do the episode breaks i think i think we just take it as it is in the trade we'll do a complete issue and then in the same episode if there do happen to be a few extra pages we need to cover we'll cover them yeah we'll, we'll work it out we'll work it out we did it for <laughs> earth too we can yeah, do it again exactly um pj um it's been wonderful talking Scarfish and, and, and cosmic horror with you. Uh, is there anything left to say on the matter? Have we have we have we missed or or omitted anything? Actually, yeah. Going back to that two part story we've just finished, I do I, I do want to say one more thing, which is I think it works very well as well as being a brilliant JLA story. I also think it works very well as a Sandman epilogue. I really mm. do. I think if you read uh, the Wake and then read this two-part story. It is a nice little... Yeah, Daniel's not in it a lot, but Morpheus wasn't in a lot of Sandman stories that much either. He'd just be the impetus for the story to continue, which is what Daniel is here. And, um, yeah, it just works for me as part of the whole Sandman storyline as well. Yeah. No, it's a fair point, because it's very... It's a very faith, faithful depiction of Daniel, a very respectful one. Hmm. And yeah, he's not kind of cheapened or, you know, lessened it anyway by appearing in a superhero comic. It, yeah, as you say, it, yeah, I'd love to know what Gaiman's thoughts on the matter were. Yeah, me too. I it, cannot find done, anything online though. No, it's it's done very respectfully, I think. And yeah, I don't want to put words in Gaiman's mouth, but if if I was in in his situation, I probably would have been okay with it as well. I really hope he doesn't hate it. <laughs> I hope so as well. We'll have to, uh, yeah, we'll have to keep pestering him. Let's keep harassing him on Twitter until let's, he uh, tells us. Let's get him on the podcast. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure Neil's got nothing better to do. He'll, no. he'll, he'll come around. Yeah, we, um, we'll say to him, Neil, we've got about ten listeners. You could uh... <laughs> maybe less. <laughs> <laughs> so you know that everybody listening cares. <laughs> um, on on that. Affirming note, uh, I guess I should say uh, a massive thank you as ever to Gav Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork. And to Elliot Red for composing and performing our wonderful theme tune, Justice. 
And if you enjoy hearing PJ and I uh, talk JLA and nonsense and increasingly relevant Scarfish talk as as Suicide Squad, the Suicide Squad eventually comes out, you can find us on social media. Our details are in the description. And if you would like to, and I have to do it this week, of all weeks I have to, if you'd love to help the podcast, you can do that by going onto your favourite podcast receptacle of choice, leave us a nice review and a five-star-o rating. <laughs> yes! You, you know what, PJ? Yes, you're right. We've got to... Yeah, <laughs> we should be pushing that grift more. <laughs> you know, he said Starro, everybody. That deserves, <laughs> that deserves a like. Um... PJ, is there anything left you'd like to shout about? No. Right. Okay. Well. Okay. You've you've had. Okay. You've got your scarro pun out of the way. We've 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 lined lined the path. All that remains, PJ, is for you to take us home in epic, epic style. Starro. 